So welcome Florian and Oliver and all who are listening today. I'm very happy to have you here with me for this episode of our podcast. The topic today is sustainable finance and we're going to talk quite a lot about ESG data. Oliver Spalt will be my co-host for today. Oliver is Professor of Financial Markets and Financial Institutions at the University of Mannheim. And Florian is our guest today. Florian is researcher at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. And Florian has done some amazing work um, that is related to ESG data and the weaknesses of ESG um, secondary data sets, which I find amazing. And I think it really uh, kicked off a discussion, which is very necessary. I'm really looking forward to the session with both of you. And first, before we go into the topic, um, Florian, we would really like to ask you to give us a little bit of background on yourself. So um, how did you decide to work on your current research topics? What was the path that led you there? Um, what sparked your interest in ESG data and the topics related to sustainable finance? Yeah, Thank you, Laura. Thank you for having me. Um, of course, I actually have to um, go a little bit back in time. I started, uh, I studied economics as an undergrad and financial engineering as in my master's program in Paris at Dauphine. And at that time, I needed to do, as everyone, an internship. And I just chose to do my internship with Grameen Bank in Bangladesh, mm -hmm. microfinance. And so I got really interested in this, um, yeah, this idea of doing good and also um, doing well. And I thought this was a, a very good way of, uh, yeah, of development work in, in Bangladesh. Fast forward, I didn't stay in, in microfinance. I actually switched then to um, finance, uh, financial markets. Because one of my professors in my master's program heard that I went to Grameen Bank and he was a quant at Amundi and was working quite a lot on sustainable strategies, sustainable investment strategies. And he just asked me if I want to do an internship with them. And I did and I stayed. And then I actually wrote my PhD with them uh, at Dauphine and with Amundi. And yeah. And at that time, I was my, my, my PhD was already focused on sustainable finance. And at that time, it was kind of the same discussion that we still have. The mm -hmm. data is the problem. But when I went to conferences, no one was actually looking at the data. Everyone was complaining, but no one was really doing research mm -hmm. about the data. Um, that frustrated me a little bit, to be honest. So I left, went to a hedge fund, <laughs> stayed there for two years in London. And then I met Roberto Rigobon. And he actually, um, we had this discussion about ESG ratings and we decided to, um, yeah, go one step back. So mm -hmm. not using the data right away, but actually looking at the data first and, and measurement practices. And that's how I ended up at MIT working with Roberto and Julian Kerbel, who is in Zurich. Yeah. And um, now I'm actually back in sustainable finance. I have to admit that I was also one of the persons complaining and not doing research on the data. <laughs> Me too. I was very, <laughs> I was complaining <laughs> a lot, of course. <laughs> um, maybe we can talk a bit about this current trend around sustainable finance and ESG. Um, I mean, you already have been working on this for a couple of years and um, you see this field really shifting Um, currently, we have this huge momentum, which 
is great, of course, because we have urgent sustainability issues that we should solve and that need money. Um, but at the same time, it's it's happening so quickly. So um, one question that I would have for you is what is your your view on this very fast movement in the field? Is it only positive or are there also some problems related to these quick developments? Yeah, of course. Generally, I think it's, it's a good thing because um, you give actually people the ability to invest according to their values. Because I think that um, this is something that finance get always got wrong, um, that it's just the return that matters. And a very simple example is that um, if you have two investments, And one gives you 11% return, the other one 10%. But the 11% um, is where you reduce the moral distance to, for example, you have to you, you see actually that the company engages in child labor or something like that, then you might not invest in that. Um, and yeah, and so I think that is actually, um, and there's research now that shows that um, in our uh, utility function, we do have actually a social return component as well. Um, so I think that is actually, that, that's, that's definitely, I definitely think that's a good thing. But the problem here is actually that um, because it's going so fast, right? We actually don't really know. Um, we still don't really know why we have actually, for example, we see what, what is a little bit considered often as a holy grail is that uh, ESG performance causes um, an overperformance, an financial overperformance. And a lot of um, asset managers advertise with that. But um, we see that, for example, I wrote a paper that I talk later about where we do actually find a positive link, mm -hmm. but we can't really tell why that is. Um, maybe it is some mispricing. Maybe it takes time to integrate those, um, those ratings. But since it's so fast, I probably think I would see the positive return is because there's a shift of preferences. And during the shift of preferences, um, we observe a positive return. But um, that would also mean if the shift of preference slows down, um, then we would actually see a negative expected return. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that is something the industry has to deal with in a couple of years. So I think that is, yeah, and it might actually, that might lead to some bad feelings if we actually do a lot of advertising about, We have an overperformance, and then we actually see the opposite. Is that actually necessarily a bad thing when we see a negative um, or a lower expected returns? Mm -hmm. No, mm -hmm. it's not because um, it means that the price are actually higher. They are they're higher because of preferences, and that also means that we actually shift. We we give or those we, we reduce the cost of capital of uh, of certain firms of ESG firms, mm -hmm. and by that we actually might have an impact. And that leads me to the last um, point, and that's a, um, that we, I think we need more research on impact. We don't really actually know how much we change, especially with um, listed uh, stocks. When we have, for example, when we invest in mutual fund, do we actually that invest according to ESG um, or have a sustainability pro a sustainable profile? Do we actually change something in the world? Hmm. It's not, and there's I haven't really seen. Uh, a real answer unless the mutual fund engages in certain voting behavior and lobbies direct directly mm -hmm. with the companies to change something. But just by buying something um, and driving up the prices, I'm not sure if there's an impact. There might mm -hmm. be, there might be not. Mm -hmm. 
So, uh, Florian, um, let, let's talk a bit about uh, your work on ESG ratings. So I think one thing that we do uh, observe is that a lot of uh, asset managers are trying to integrate ESG into their portfolio construction. And what we know is that in, I mean, what we know is that even in theory, it's, it's uh, not so easy. It's still doable. Uh, but that, of course, assumes that we know what the ESG signal is that we want to build into our portfolio construction. And I think this is where your work comes in, looking at the uh, actual data that would be available to asset managers when they're trying to uh, set up their portfolios. And uh, so your paper is, uh, you know, widely read, uh, widely received as one that is very critical on our current abilities to actually integrate these measures in, uh, well, in a way that we would consider optimal. Uh, can you talk a bit about your work and how that impacts uh, what as asset managers do or what they could do? Of course. Um, so the... This paper that you're um, referring to um, was the title was um, "Aggregate Confusion: The Divergence of ESG Ratings," and in that paper we looked actually at the six biggest raters at the time and tried to explain why they diverge. In the beginning, we just um, gathered the data and saw that the correlations were actually roughly around 50, 60, 70 percent between the different ESG raters, <clears throat> but The problem here is um, that we didn't really couldn't explain why they actually didn't diverge. So we tried to find a decomposition um, that, yeah, that just showed us what is actually was going on under the hood. Mm. And our theoretical framework is that we actually um, said that uh, that divergence can come from scope. So do I actually measure something? Do I integrate something in my analysis? Um, probably if you're interested in sustainability, you probably, or if you want, you, you would definitely want to have um, a measure of CO2 emissions or climate change in there, um, corruption as well, probably diversity, but then something like electromagnetic fields um, pollution is another topic. We as Germans, we probably would have it in there. Americans that have landlines all over the place, probably not. Um so that's scope. Uh, then also we have the, what we say is weights divergence, and that's the relative importance that I give to um, an indicator. So what is more important to me, CO2 emissions or corruption, child labor um, or child labor? And the last uh, source of divergence, which is actually the biggest source of divergence, is measurement divergence. And that's a, um, a little bit more complicated one because the first two, the scope and weights, you could also say it's a little bit the definition I have of sustainability. Whereas measurement divergence is more, I want to measure the same concept, the same attribute, but I come to a different conclusion because I use different proxies. Um, for example, if I use for CO2 emissions, scope one and scope two are disclosed by companies um, often, and they are certainly noisy, but they are probably quite well measured, where scope three measures, where I look at supply chains, how much my supply chain emits in terms of CO2, that there's so many approximations and so many assumptions that we will actually, um, all those raters will come to a different conclusion. And this measurement diver divergence actually hints also noise. 
that means we do not really um, assess something in a way that we want to. Can you actually say how much of the divergence comes from scope, weights, and measurement divergence? Yeah. Um, so measurement divergence is more than 50%. I would say roughly 55% of the divergence and then followed by scope and weights, mostly scope. So scopes is another mm. 40% and weights is roughly 5%. So uh, if you're saying that uh, different rating or, or different raters have come to sometimes vastly different conclusions, and that's what you show in your paper, for uh, for uh, well-known companies, meaning that one and the same company sometimes comes off as uh, doing well on the ESG front in one rating, but poorly on the other. But what is the, so coming back to my question, like from an asset management perspective, so what are the some of the implications of that, which you're also drawing out in your work? Of course, um, the, yeah, the, so the, the the scope and weights is um, is as I said is how do you define sustainability? Um, that is, I think, up to everyone on their own to decide how they actually define sustainability. Because even in my team, we are three, and we probably disagree on quite a lot of things. Um, if we came up with an ESG rating, so you have the definition of sustainability, and then. So, and then you have the measurement divergence. The measurement divergence is introduced, as I said, hints noise, right? So for an asset manager now, the implication is that you have to have a good due diligence of what rating you use. So you have to be happy with um, their scope and weights. So the definition of sustainability, but you also have to keep in mind that those ESG ratings are noisy and it's not necessarily sad that you um, will, will find very easily um, or identify very easily laggards and leaders. What, what I find actually interesting is that um, if we, for example, collect other forms of data, we often talk about inter-rater reliability, right? And uh, in the case of ESG rankings, could we also say that then it would be good to actually use different, you know, rankings, ratings, and then kind of aggregate them to get the best values? Yeah. So um, we could, for example, the very simple solution in terms when you have errors and variables, um, so measurement error, noise, um, you could just take an average out of different ratings. But there are actually better ways. So here we can actually maybe come, before we go to the um, rewriting history paper, we can maybe actually talk about your newer paper on the noise correction procedure, right? Do you want to yes. elaborate a bit on that and what you found there? Yes, of course. Um, so the, 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 here, so we, we started from exactly from that point of view that we should actually maybe use an, an average to find, um, to reduce the measurement noise. But as I said, there are better ways in the econometric literature. And one way is uh, um, to use a, a instrumental variable approach. So what we do for those who know this uh, methodology, we actually use one rating and instrument is with other ratings. We have in our paper eight different ratings. And when we actually do our analysis, we see that previously the link between financial performance and ESG performance was underestimated by 60%. And just by using this very easy um, noise correction procedure, 
we can actually uh, show that the link is much stronger than, yeah. And you mentioned in the intro that you don't really know where this is coming from, right? So what are the next steps then for you on this paper? On this paper, mm -hmm. um, we will add, um, so one common question apart from the, the, the other, or what the industry often use in asset managers, uh, averages or PCA. Mm -hmm. So we, what we actually want to do is we, or we at the moment we're running some simulations that show that uh, the PCA is actually also suboptimal um, compared to uh, an instrumental variable approach. And the reason is that because, for example, if you have two ratings such as True Value Labs and uh, Rebecca Sam, they're very much, uh, Rebecca Sam now is S&P Global, they're constructed in a very different way. S&P Global has, sends out a questionnaire, they come up with a rating once a year. It's very slowly moving. Whereas True Value Labs, they have, um, they use a lot of controversies, so data that they find in the media, analyze that with NLP techniques. And so they have a very high variability. Um, so if you just run a, a now intuitively, if you run a PCA on um, a principal component analysis on those two ratings, you would actually um, create a, um, another variable that was, would be mostly based on TVL. But since TVL is probably very noisy and that we find in our paper, it is the most the noisiest rating out of all in our sample. Um, this would lead um, to false conclusions and would increase the noise. So can I ask uh, two questions, one more practical and one more theoretical? Uh, so on the uh, practical front, just for those folks who are listening and are asking themselves, well, you know, what, what is the takeaway? Is the takeaway that stuff is so noisy that it's unusable or is the takeaway that it's very noisy, but if we use it in the right way, we can still get some traction? So that would be my practical uh, question in terms of, you know, what, or what is your experience from talking with asset managers? Like, how are I, do, you, do you have the impression that people are using ratings in a sophisticated way or more in a naive way? And uh, the second one, which is a theoretical one, is um, your perspective seems to be that there is something like a true rating out there, but people are just missing the mark because this is something that's hard to measure. Um, couldn't it also be that there is uh, an optimum where we have multiple signals, so we would expect different people to measure different things just because, I don't know, they have an edge in doing so? Okay. Sorry, those were two questions that are sort yeah. of... <laughs> but if, 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 you, if you want, perhaps you can start with the, uh, you know, how, how, what is your impression on how do people integrate these things in, in practice? Are they sophisticated about it? Is it still useful to look at these measures or is there so much noise that it's just futile to do so? Yeah, I think coming back to your, also to your previous question is um, about the very fast adoption of that, right? I think that is also leads to um, often a naive uh, use of the ratings because you want to get it out, um, the, the mutual fund. And so you just, uh, you don't really you don't really have the expertise in ESG or not yet. So you just buy the ratings, use them, optimize it, uh, quant will optimize your portfolio, and then you have an ESG fund. But as we show, it's not that easy. Um, you should actually have a very good understanding. I mean, the ESG ratings are very complex, multi-dimensional constructs. 
Um, you have, sometimes have up to 284 different issues combined in one ESG ratings, rating. And so the, I think it is very important that um, asset managers actually yeah, um, have a good due diligence and they know what they actually, what rating they buy and what they then do with it. Um, so I would obviously uh, recommend to have some noise correction procedures in there, but already understanding what's actually in your, in your rating before you do that, it would be a very good start. Yeah. And we see some asset managers that are sophisticated, sophisticated about that. And some others learn how, learn how to be sophisticated. I think it's in, since the adoption is so fast, it's still somewhat a young field. So there still has to be. Um, yeah, there still has to be a lot of more yeah, research um, done on on this. Yeah. So, so and on my my second question, well, another way to ask this would be: Do you expect convergence in these ratings going forward, as raters are also getting better in producing these ratings, or do you expect there to be some baseline level of uh, just you know different raters offer different types of ratings? That's a great question. Um, I don't expect to be that they are, will be correlated, for example, like credit risk ratings. We often compare them because they are ESG ratings and they're credit risk ratings. So we compare them or ESG risk ratings even, and we compare them um, somewhat, maybe some consciously to credit risk ratings, but they're completely different. Credit risk ratings is just a buy-in. It's just, you can backtest them very easily, the methodology, because either There's a, you observe a bankruptcy or not, or a default. Um, and so those methodologies, they have, they are easier to backtest. And so they also have a natural, like, um, yeah, gravitating for, force towards, um, yeah, towards a, a divert, uh, convergence. Um, with ESG ratings is different because first of all, we have those, uh, we have the definition of sustainability. And that is not even constant over time. I'm pretty sure if I ask anyone today mm -hmm. and then next week what is important to him, they will give me different answers. And COVID-19 showed it. Um, factory workers in factory, health and safety in factories is much more, and in, in, in companies is much more important now than it used to be. Black Lives Matters, uh, Me Too, all those climate change, all those um, things actually make that the, this definition of sustainability that everyone has, the values, um, change over time. Mm -hmm. So there, I don't necessarily expect convergence. Um, the other thing is measurement. It's really hard also to backtest your methodologies because you actually, you, you almost rarely know the realization of your prediction in terms of ESG because you only observe the same variables. So for example, talking about, uh, diversity, If you look at um, diversity in a company and you come up with a couple of statistics on numbers or frequencies, then you would still observe a year later or two years later the same kind of numbers. Maybe they changed a little bit, but you don't really know the truth of how, how diverse a company is, how, um, how people are treated, actually, uh, what the corporate culture is, how people are treated within the company. So, yeah, I, what I hear, what I hope, for the future is that um, there will be more innovation in that space and people that first of all, there will be um, better firm level disclosure, for example, audited. Um, 
but also there will be work from the side of the ESG raters be, through innovation, through measurement of, for example, CO2 emissions, maybe through satellites that is already happening. Um, and those kind of things where we can actually then, um, yeah, refine the measurement, um, but yeah, from, but outside of a company. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's actually one question, a question that I also had when you talked about the different sources of divergence, um, whether all the different raters use the same data collection methods or would there also be some form of divergence that could come from that, right? I mean, I remember that Thomson Reuters, when I used the data the first time, they had this huge team, 120 raters that were sitting there collecting data um, and looking at websites and so on. I think now some of them also use artificial intelligence to... Um, to really um, like collect the data from the internet. But I think that's like probably something that is very fast changing, right? Yeah. And we, for example, in our noise paper, we have, um, we have eight raters in our sample and we discussed that actually, mm -hmm. um, the, the, the fact that they are so different mm -hmm. um, because you would also expect different levels of noise. Um, so for example, as I said, S&P Global only sends a, out a questionnaire once a year and then they come up with a rating so there's no they don't change it whereas then rep risk or two value lips are more controversy focused and they have a high variability um, every day then you have other raters that for example msci um, does not want to punish anyone for not disclosing any data whereas refinitiv says um, we actually want to punish uh, uh, firms for not disclosing because if not mm -hmm. you would get a benefit from lying mm. so um there's yeah they're they're very different then others also uh, look more at ESG risks for example sustainalytics and others look more at what we call dual materiality so impact on society and ESG risks for example mm -hmm. visuaris that became now moody's ESG solutions mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I mean, there are also really huge biases from those different collection methods, because as you said, sometimes companies that have the most to hide will probably not report. And um, it really depends on how strongly you then search or, or really pressure put pressure on them, right, to to provide data. Yeah, yeah for sure. Well, plus, if I can, I mean, there's, there's one neat finding I find in, in your paper, <laughs> which is that... Uh, Some, I mean, what you also find is there is uh, rater-specific biases, right? So uh, one one in the same rater has a favorable opinion on a company across multiple dimensions, and you can oh, really yeah. trace this back to to individuals giving the ratings, which is mm -hmm. uh, yeah, mm -hmm. that is, was actually a very interesting um, finding, and the way we found it is actually quite a funny story because we. I had, uh, so I had in total 725 or 24 indicators in this first study. And I just had a, I went uh, on, I plotted it on a massive screen, the whole uh, correlation matrix and put on a heat map. And then I started seeing patterns that were quite unusual and shouldn't have been there. So then we actually investigated that econometrically and found that there is actually that analysts within those raters have a, um, a prior on how the company is performs in terms of ESG. And then they, they're influenced when they um, fill out actually, or they, yeah, in, in individual indicators. 
we call it radar effect. Some people call it the halo effect. But basically, for to understand it, it's like when you were in high school and you had um, you you had uh, the same teacher in five classes, and in four classes you were the best in the class. In one year, just average. Most likely, the teacher would give you a better grade than you deserve in the fifth class. And this is a little bit what we see in, um, well, this is exactly what we see in, in our paper. But that would mean that if there is more artificial intelligence that is used, then the ratings would get better because the human bias is um, eradicated? Yeah, but it would maybe introduce more noise. We don't mm -hmm. know that. I can't say definitely that it gets better, but artificial intelligence would actually, because then it would be by indicator, probably working, um, then it would actually, yeah, probably eradicate that bias. But that comes also at a cost, right? Mm -hmm. So one more paper that we really wanted to talk about with you is your rewriting history paper. <laughs> And I think that this is another piece where you found a super interesting effect that had not been described, detected in this way. So maybe you can tell us a bit about these retroactive rating changes and how you found them and what they mean. Yeah, Actually, it started with um, Cornelia Fabisic, my co-author, who downloaded um, the Refinitiv dataset twice because she thought she had made a mistake in the first download, so she just wanted to re-download it. And she found that actually um, that the datasets didn't, weren't the same. Um, that obviously is a problem in, in finance and academia because we often want to... Um, We want to run back tests. So since we do not observe the future, we go back in time and pretend that this is the future. Basically, we go back in, for example, to 2001, observe the ESG score, and then want to see what happens in 2002 to the financial return. But the problem here, this means that we need to know the ESG rating and the financial return from that time. Mm -hmm. Since uh, Refinitiv changes those ratings every week, as we found, um, this is actually impossible. So we can't use that data set for back tests or for most of the academic research it's used. And it's a, it's a data set that's heavily used in academia because it's very easily accessible for academics through data stream and which most of the libraries, university libraries subscribe to. So we actually then, we, we, we downloaded it again, the data set. And as I said, we found that actually every Friday they have retroactive rating changes going back till the beginning of the data set. Um, yeah, and we, we actually also show that the correlation between financial, in those back tests, that the correlation between financial performance and ESG performance goes up over time. So there is kind of a tweaking towards better financial performance, which makes sense because that's most of the time how raters actually um, try to sell their, their ratings, that there is a correlation between ESG performance and financial performance. So what do the raters say about your findings? Have you been in contact with them? That is very funny. I have been in contact with most of the raters or with almost every rater on our um, data sets, except for Refinitiv. I tried to contact them a couple of times, oh. but funnily enough, three months after we put this paper on SSN, they announced that they finally will come up with a point-in-time database. <laughs> 
So there is some impact of academic research after all. <laughs> yes, I think that is actually, um, yeah, here for sure for our, for our aggregate confusion paper, there was also, we had a lot of discussions um, internally with ESG raters and I was surprised how serious they took our advice and also the findings of our paper. And there were actually, there were some changes that I know how they changed data sets in a way because we pointed out problems. Um, yeah, so there was. Maybe if we want to look at this practitioner field a little bit and look into the future. So we've just said that we have this incredible momentum around um, sustainable finance at the moment. What do you think how this field will evolve? What do you think where we stand right now? Um, and I mean, you already said earlier with these new regulations um, on companies' sustainability reporting, we will have better data and more transparency in the future. So what is your guess how this whole field will evolve? Yeah, the, I think that um, you, you actually, a big part of that evolution you already saw in the last two, three years, S&P Global bought Rebecca Sam, Moody's bought Visual Iris, Morningstar bought Sustainalytics, MSCI is already a big uh, company behind. So East uh, Factset bought True Value Labs. So there is actually this happening. ESG is taken very seriously within those institutions. Some actually like Moody's and S&P say that they want to integrate credit risk rating analysis with, um, with ESG analysis. So I think that will actually be happening more and more, this integration in the future. And the other thing is that we need to, what I hope, this is more hope than actually a prediction, is that we improve measurement practices. And what you see, the problem at the moment is, even for me as a researcher, when I approached all those, rate, those raters, it was really hard actually to get um, to understand their methodologies. So we got a PDF often, if we were lucky. And with mm -hmm. that PDF, we still had to try to figure out what's actually really going on. This in transparency, I think is they do that on purpose because um, obviously it's much harder to sell a rating if you're open for criticism, right? Open to criticism, and I think that um, I think this is something I hope that so th that we actually put my emphasis on um, yeah solving this measurement issue, meaning that for example you might see a couple of new startups that just focus on one issue like. CO2 emissions through satellites with um, yeah, new methodologies. And that the, this data, they sell them to the big ESG raters in order to improve the measurement, for example. The other thing is that, as I said, it's very intransparent. Um, I would like, um, and I, I advocate that a lot, um, that and there will be regulation on ESG raters, that actually um, we we um, force them to be more transparent. So we as academics, NGOs, or firms can criticize them, how they measure um, certain indicators. And then through that, that we have improvement over time. And I mean, they are so powerful, right? Um, I mean, Oliver, yeah. you just said it earlier, right? Um, we could ask, like, is there actually this true value or this true, um, you know, um, rating out there? Can we actually say there is something like this? Or is it just different perspectives on a topic that is changing all the time and they have the power to define, right, what uh, sustainability means, right? I think there is a true measurement for a lot of things. For example, that, uh, discrimination. I think there is a true measurement for discrimination. But 
I also think we will never perfectly observe it because if not, there would be privacy concerns. If not, mm -hmm. because we could measure that by following everyone and recording every interaction and non-interaction. But of course, mm -hmm. we don't want to do that. So that's why we also use proxies. They're cheaper, but they're easier to come up with. But they're also... Um, don't create any problems with this privacy issues. I hope that answers the question. I don't know, Oliver, if you have a question right now. I would have one more question about this impact measurement part, but I can also ask yeah, it later. Yeah, please go ahead. Um, because I, I'm really interested in this measurement of social impacts, and I think that's an area where we still have um, just so few, you know, accepted standards and methods. And um, if we talk about like tons of CO2 equivalents, well, that's, you know, the measurement, right? But um, if we talk about social impacts, let's say a company trains their employees, the training can be actually a high quality training, or it can be a low quality training, we don't know anything about the real impact of the, these activities, right? So I would be interested in what your view is on this um, lack of measurement on impact level, And should we actually try to get there? How can we get there? And when is the proxy enough, you know? Yeah, I think that is a, um, a great question because that's something you see, observe now that people try to measure, for example, impact um, by giving a dollar value on the impact. I think that is very complicated um, and I have not yet seen um, a way in all, how you can actually really do that uh, measure impact because also... Even in, you were describing um, those training classes at, within a company, even within, there are 10 different people sitting, listening, but they will all get different things out of it. And so measuring the impact means going, measuring somewhat the consumer surplus for each person, right? Mm -hmm. um, the problem is if you just proxy for it uh, with something else or take an average or assume something, we might actually not come to good conclusion. So here, it's very easy within a company. It's very easy. You can give a feedback. You say, this wasn't good for me or it was good for me. But if we then, for example, if um, BlackRock would start and big asset managers would start using those impact ratings, um, I think that would could cause problems because maybe we push the economy towards something that actually people don't really, not really interested in. Yeah, I agree. And I could go more into detail if you want. Yeah, there is also this incentive problem, right? Like if, if you put a value on trainings per se, then there is an incentive to just conduct cheap, bad trainings, right? Yeah, for sure. For sure. Exactly. Um, also, it, it, it's not necessarily it. For example, when you look at, um, I read a paper once uh, about a methodology. Um, if, and if you look, for example, they, they looked at airlines and they said, um, Uh, a flight to from New York to Boston is more important than to Puerto Rico because Puerto Rico is mainly tourists and to Boston is mainly work. But then assume there's a or Tahiti, and then assume there's a there's a there's a massive storm going on there. Mm -hmm. So now we actually have an airline going there that can very cheaply transport doctors to Puerto Rico, but. In the end, actually, they can only go there very cheaply because a lot of tourists went there, right? Mm -hmm. So um, that actually, obviously, then what's the impact, right? So the, the, those tourists subsidize, actually, or give the possibility to keep up the, the, yeah, the cheap transfer for, for the doctors. So I think that is, it, it is just, for me, yeah, I think it, this is a little bit too complicated and too complex to measure. And uh, yeah. So can I ask... Uh 
One uh, additional question, which is, what do you think? Uh, I, I don't know if you have a take on that, but uh, how do you, we've been talking a lot about how ESG ratings are used by the asset management community. Uh, what is your view on how they should be used uh, inside corporations? Mm -hmm. huh, that's a good question. Um, right now, I think there's um, some good parts to it. For example, corporations start looking at them, right? So, and what I often heard anecdotally is that the CEO was surprised that the company performed so badly in a, in a, in a certain dimension. And then obviously what gets measured um, gets managed, right? Uh, the other problem, then the other problem is that um, when you use that as an indicator, that's great. Um, but the problem is when you start using it as targets, if they are very noisy, as you explained with uh, the training sessions, if you're just a target of having um, a lot of training hours, then you just go to cheap coaches. Is that do people learn something from that? I don't know. Um, so I think that is a big problem. Um, so the, the putting targets on sustainability, I think that is uh, yeah, that is problematic. But um, looking at it, indicators, I think that is a great thing, and just raising awareness basically within the company that something is going wrong. Absolutely. Okay. So I think we are already coming towards the end of our interview. Um, maybe um, we could have one last question for you. Um, if you look at the researchers that are now, the junior researchers that are now starting into the ESG field, working with this kind of data, working on all of these topics that are hot topics at the moment, what would you recommend for them to do? Young researchers. Um, I still consider myself as a young researcher. <laughs> <laughs> so I have to give advice to myself. <laughs> so do I, but it's probably wrong. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I, I think that um, what a lot of people want to do when they come out in the field and they haven't really seen the research is this proof that there is... Um, the ESG performance impacts financial performance. And um, I've not yet seen any, as I said, convincing work on disentangling the different impact channels. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, theoretical work, yes, but empirical, no. So unless you really know you have found a solution to that, um, I would maybe not focus in the beginning on that um, link. Mm -hmm. Very good point. Yeah, and then we always have a last question that we ask our guests, and that is if you could post one sentence on social media, which the world the world would read right now, what would it be? Um, ESG cannot and will ESG is a is a great tool for empowering investors to um, invest according to their values, but it cannot cannot replace um regulation in for example with the co2 tax mm -hmm. yeah okay oliver and florian uh this is uh, the chance if you have any last things you would like to share any thoughts that you would like to mention no i don't i would just like to thank florian uh this is fascinating stuff and uh, we're of course looking very much forward to reading uh more interesting papers coming uh from your side So uh, this is uh, also <laughs> something that is very impactful, of course, for uh, practitioners, as as we said. 
And I think it just shows that this is an evolving field that, uh, you know, has a ton of potential, but also a ton of things that we still have to, uh, you know, do some homework on. And uh, so, you know, thanks, thanks very much. Yes, I can only agree with that. Thanks for challenging this whole field and really asking the right questions, providing rigorous data. So I think that's great work that we really need at the moment. Thank you also for taking the time to be with us here today for the podcast. And Oliver, thanks for co-hosting the session. Thanks to you, Laura. I would also like to uh, thank everyone who is here listening to us today. And um, I would say have a great rest of the day. See you soon. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.